0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Din and Daf. I'm Ilana Steinhain, and this is where we conceptualize Halakha through case studies from Daf Yomi. So here's our case today. It's the case of a coerced transaction. Let's say I do not want to sell you my iPhone, but you really want me to sell you my iPhone. So you actually have someone physically restrain me until I am willing to sell you my iPhone. You give me money, I say, sure, you can have my iPhone. But clearly, this whole thing was done under duress. Should this count legally, halakhically, as a valid sale? This is the subject of our conversation today. You can find a line about this on the bottom of Bavakama Samach Bet Aleph, where Rav Huna is quoted as saying, such a sale is valid. This is known as talyuhu vizaman, someone who was strung up, literally physically restrained with some sort of rope, and as a result was coerced into selling something of theirs, whether karka, whether landed property, or metaltolin, movables. And he says, the sale is a sale, svine svine, the sale is a sale. So I want to think about this because I think it raises a very important question about the degree to which law can actually penetrate in its judgments of things. Can it penetrate beyond what it sees on the surface? And what I mean by what it sees on the surface is if you perform all of the activities that make up a transaction, and yet it is very clear that your heart is not in it, what role should your heart play? And to be honest, you could make an argument for law actually not wanting to try to penetrate what's going on inside, but only saying, if you've done the performance, the transaction is legitimate. Because the truth is, if we start probing what's going on inside, we might get to other issues like, oh, well, I was only selling you this because I wanted to move to Israel. And then I didn't move to Israel in the end, so therefore... This sale should be null and void. And you can understand where people could make all sorts of excuses as to what they were really thinking when they made a sale. On the other hand, you look at something like this and you say, well, this kind of seems egregious. I mean, Clearly, if somebody is constraining me physically and saying, we'll only let you go if you sell us your iPhone, I mean, it's very clear to everybody that I don't really want to sell my iPhone, isn't it? So you don't have to do much probing in order to get there. So this is the example I want to think about today. Now, the truth is, the example of tell you a person making a sale because they were coerced to another person, is not really the first place in Chazal that we see this concept of somebody might be coerced to do a transaction, and yet we consider the transaction to be valid. So I want to look at two precursors with you. In fact, the first precursor is a precursor that's taken from the very beginning of Vayikra, the way the Chazal explain it, and I'm going to share my screen. In Vayikra, Perek Aleph, Pasagimel, I'm just skipping this place on the source sheet is where the issue comes up at the bottom of Samach, Bed, and Aleph, Kama. more than welcome to look it up. In Vayikra, Perek Aleph, Pasagimel, the discussion is bringing a Korban Ola, a korban ola, a korban that is fully burnt on the Mizbeach. Now, korban ola is interesting because for the most part, when individuals offer a korban ola, it is out of their own volition. It is true that a korban ola does offer you kapara, it does offer you expiation for certain sins, like being mivatelet a mitzvah not performing a, a positive commandment. But it's still something that you decide to give. Unlike, for example, a chatat, where when I do certain sins, I have a chiyuv to bring a chatat in order to gain my kapara. So that'll be important to us later because the volitional element matters. Let's take a look. Im ola korbano, if the person's korban that they're choosing to bring is an ola, Min bakar it'll come from the cattle. Zechar tamim yakrivenu. They are going to give a male, unblemished animal. El petach ohal moed yakrivoto. To the opening of ohal moed, meaning to the mishkan. They will bring it. lirtzono for their acceptance, meaning lifnei Hashem, before God. Meaning you're bringing this because you want God to look favorably on you. Now, Chazal took a look already in the Sifrut Tana'it, already in early rabbinic literature, Tana'itic rabbinic literature. They looked at this phrase, Yakriv Oto Lirtso No. A person will bring it for their acceptance. And they said, wait a second, just taking this out of its, um, I would say, clear contextual meaning of a person will bring this for their acceptance we are going to read this as a person will bring this according to their own will according to their own volition and notice that hmm, maybe we can actually break up the phrase so take a look at what the sifra Halachic midrash does with this phrase of yakriv oto which is now being understood as will give it by their own volition yakriv oto A person has to give it. If they said they're going to give an ola, they have to give it, meaning even if we force them, meaning we can even force them to do it because they said they were going to do it, and we have to force them. You can imagine a situation where somebody says, "Ah, I want to give a korban ola. I plan to give a korban ola. They even make an official statement that they're going to give a korban ola, but then mm, they start dilly dallying Nope. They must bring it. If they said they're going to bring it, they must bring it so we can even... Force them, coercion, right? But wait, it also says no, by their volition. Yachol al Maybe you're allowed to make them do it even against their will. Talmud Lomar Therefore, the Pasuk says, no, 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 no. so No. It has to be by their own volition. Now, what do you mean? You can force someone to do something of their own volition? Hmm. Here we have the precursor to our example with my iPhone. Kita, how does it how does it work? Kofinoto, you force a person until they say I want to do it. What? You force the person until they say I want to do it. Now explain to me how forcing a person to say I want to do something makes it no longer duress or against their volition. Well, the Sifra doesn't explain that. It simply takes for granted that it's good enough to force someone to say, I want to do this. Now, I find this fascinating because I look at this and I say, oh, this is how law works, right? According to the law, if you give me money, I hand over a product and I say here, I want to sell it to you, the sale has been made. Do we really care that in my heart of hearts it doesn't matter to me? I said, I did the performance, I said that I want to give it to you. The other issues that may be in the background, those are in the background, right? So this is a fascinating approach, which as we'll see, the Gemara later is not okay with just saying, well, this is just a performance and that all law cares about is the performative element on top. But actually, the Gemara is going to try to say, no, 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 when I say rotsani, when I say I want to do this, I really, really mean it subjectively on the inside. And the law does care. But let's see when we get there. So that's the first precursor to our example of Rav Huna saying, you can string somebody up, or if you string somebody up until they're willing to sell something to you and they're willing and they sell it, sale is valid. So here's our precursor. The Korban Ola, forcing someone to say, I want to give this Korban Ola and give it. So take a look at what the Mission in Erechin does, because the Mission in Erechin gives us another example, another precursor to Rav Hunas stringing people up and buying from them. Chayave Arachim, first, it starts basically with our Ola example, or it starts in the world of Kudchen. Chayave Arachim. People who are obligated to pay their value to the mikdash because they made a decision. They made a declaration. I'm going to pay my value. And how you value that, that is the stuff of uh, uh, Masachat erchin. But how you value that, that's not the issue here. It's that I said I would give that amount of money to the mikdash. But let's say I'm daily dallying. So we say memashkininotan. You can actually go to their house, go to my house, and repossess something of mine in order to for payment. That's a great example of forcing someone to do something that they said they were going to do, but they're not doing it. But you can't do that with all kudshim chataot ashamot, however, if you are required to bring a chata, or you are required to bring an asham, both korbanot that come for individuals for doing certain sins, They can't repossess items of yours in order to finance it. They cannot force you to do it. Now, it's interesting. Why is that? Maybe we just assume that eventually I'm going to give that korban because I actually have a requirement to give that korban. And so we're not really worried about this situation of, well, she's never going to give it. So we have to force, right, force her hand by repossessing something of hers, right? But on the other hand, the korbanot that are volitional for individuals for the most part, Chayave Olot ushlamim, people who are required to bring an Ola and a Shlam or a Shlamim. Ola burns completely on the Mizbeach. Shlomim, you eat half of it. The Mizbeach eats half of it. I mean, then we can actually take a Mashkon. We can actually take something that is able to finance it from their house, like repossess it from their house. Why? Because those things are, for the most part, volitional. So if I'm dilly-dallying, maybe I'm, Never going to give it. And I've already make it, made a declaration that I have to give it. So these are examples where Chazal are talking again about this question. In the world of Kutchin, can we force someone to do something? And as soon as we get to this issue of coercion by repossessing something of theirs, in this case, the mission is going to bring up our issue of, but wait a minute, what about Lir Tso? No, it has to be based on someone's will. Even though a person doesn't gain kaparat, doesn't gain expiation until they actually want to bring this, as it says, that it has to be based on a person's will, which again, contextually, it's actually for the person's acceptance before God, but we're reading it as by the person's own volition and will. Kofinoto you force them until they say, I want to do it. All right? So this is the example that we saw before, but expanded out a little bit to tell us where else it might apply in Kutchim and where it doesn't apply in Kutchim. By the way, I put on the source sheet uh an exception to each one of these rules because, for example, there is a Korban khatat where you don't actually, where we do actually coerce, and there is an example of a Korban Ola where we don't actually coerce because that's why you don't learn halacha from a Mishnah, right? There's always, always, always more. But the key to why we're looking at this Mishnah and Erechin is not just to uh, repeat what we saw in the Sifra, but because of what Erechin adds at the end. It says, umer, And likewise you say, nashim When it comes to a bill, bills of divorce for women. Kofinoto adshomarotsani. You force the man to give it until he says, I want to give it. Now, let's be very clear about what this situation is and is not. In general, we say that a get that was forced is invalid. It is called a get meuseh. That is invalid. However, if you look in the Mishnah in Ketubot, Parak Zion, Mishnah, Yud, and the Gemara there, you will see a discussion of particular cases Where we can, in fact, force a man to give a get, and it will be valid, there is a mitzvah l'garesh. There is a commandment, there is a requirement for the husband to uh, divorce his wife, and in those situations, we are allowed to coerce the husband to do it. So in that situation, in a situation such as that, we know that the get has to come from the volition of the husband based on the understanding of the Torah. And if that's the case, how do you coerce him? You coerce him, you beat him up until he says, I want to give it. Yet another example in another realm of a person doing a transaction under duress. This time, it's not selling my iPhone to somebody under duress. This time, it's not having something from my house taken in order to pay for the korban ola that I said it was going to give under duress. This time it's in the realm of ishut. This time it's in the realm of having a divorce uh, given under duress. So really interesting that we have all three of these examples from the three different places in just sort of halakh, the halachic uh, world, right? Three different chumim, three different arenas of halacha from Kachim, from Mamanot, and from Ishut. Now, we're now going to get back to Ravuna with whom we started. I want us to notice these two Tana'itic sources, they did not seem scandalized by the idea that you could be kofet, that you could force someone until they say, Rotse'ani or ani. I want to do something. Now, why is that? It's not clear. Maybe they felt they understood that when somebody says, Rotzani, Rotzani, they really mean it. Or perhaps, and this is something that's really worth thinking about in general, in terms of the way Halakha developed, the way that Chazal's understanding of Halakha developed, it is possible, and there are those who have pointed this out, that when you look at earlier Chazal, when you look at Mishnah, when you look at Tosefta, even when you look To a degree, at early Amoraim, what you see is that there is less concern with the whole conversation of what's really going on inside when it comes to at least transactions and other situations as well. And that only later within the Amoraic period do we start thinking about the subjective self in a deep way. So saying "rotsani" is not enough unless I really want something. And I'll give you for anybody who's interested in people to read on that issue of the evolution from a more, I would say, performative version of volition, right? I want, I said it, that's volition. That's enough, right? To make it not just coerced to a more subjective version of volition. What do I really feel in my heart of hearts? So one of the people who talks about this is Professor Yishai Rosenzweig. He has a few articles that are available online. I would say in a slightly different realm, Dr. Ayelet Libson talks about this in terms of the growth of um, Chazal's recognition of people's subjectivity about their own bodies. To be able to say, this is how I feel. I need to eat right now on Yom Kippur, for example. I am in danger. There's a sense of the subjective mattering. Or Dr. Shauna Strouch Schick, whose book is available, I assume her book is available online, which she wrote about the development of intention of Kavana, but not just Kavana, but let's call it intention. Intention in Chazal, how over time, the significance, the centrality of intention um, becomes more of a focus, right? What's interesting about Rosenzweig, just to start with him, is that he suggests that it's it's not just the focus, but that even maybe when the Mishnah talks about kavana, its definition, even for mitzvot, that its definition of kavana is not necessarily always about subjectively what's inside, but to an extent, almost like um being in the right context so that it's clear that what you're doing is a mitzvah, or even being aware. That you're doing a mitzvah less so what are you feeling inside about it but just an awareness that you're doing it or even in my book um circumventing the law i talk about this also where i find that Hazal's ability to ratify loopholes where people are um performing a certain kavana but it's so clear that that's not what they really feel inside it seems that in earlier Hazalic material they're more comfortable with that and as you get to Leader Amoraim, they're much less comfortable with that. They want, if you're going to say something, they want you to mean it. If you're going to do something, they want you to mean it from a subjective uh, standpoint. So that's sort of an interesting, I think that's an interesting wrinkle in all of this, going back to our question from the original discussion of like, to what extent can law really probe what the subjective individual is doing? or or I should say, is thinking or feeling versus what the person is doing externally, right? Do we judge you by your actions? How much of the subjective self do we bring into those actions? And I think it's a fair question. And what we're going to see right now in the Gemara and Baba Batra, which takes up Rav Huna, you Vizavin, stringing someone up and forcing them to sell something and says... What's the logic of this? I want to understand. This is very strange. What do you mean you're coercing somebody until they're showing volition, right? The Gemara wants subjectivity. They want to really know that a person means it. It's not enough to just say, sure, I want to sell you my iPhone when literally five people are holding me back and making sure I don't get up until I do. So here goes. We're going to see that probing. So the Gemara Nbaba Batra quotes Ravuna, same ravuna quoted on Sanak Bedamad Aleph in Bavakama. Amar um, Ravuna Rav Huna says, Tell you oven. if they strung him up um and he uh sold something, Zvine Zvine. The person's sale is valid. My time, why? Well, koldimazvin inish ilav de honest lohavimazvin. The truth is a person always feels somewhat compelled to sell, right? They need money. So if a person always feels compelled to make a sale, and even so, their sale is valid, then, okay, what's the difference between I'm compelled to sell you my iPhone because I need the money and I'm compelled to sell you my iPhone because people are restraining me. So the Gemara says, ah, I don't know, we're not so comfortable with that. Maybe there's a difference between the onus, the compulsion that I feel because I need money and the compulsion that's literally foisted upon me because people are holding me down. So the says, okay, okay, let's try again. Let's try again to explain Rafuno. Ela it's like the following b'rita. And of course, it's going to quote what we've seen already in Sifrut Ten Eight in Ten Eight literature. yakurivoto a person has to give that ola. Milameche Kofinoto teaches that we can force them. Maybe you would think that you could do it against their will. No, no, no. Talmud lamar. Therefore, the Pasuk says, so no. has to be based on the person's will. How do you square that circle? You force the person until they say, I want to do it. Ah, perfect. This must be the precursor for Rafuna. This must be the legitimating source for Rafuna. And the Gemara says, but wait. Maybe there's a difference between those two situations. Maybe it's different in the case of the Ola where you force a person until they say, I want. Because they're happy to get expiation. They're happy to get Kapara through this Korban Ola. Meaning when they say rotsani or rotsani, it's not that they don't mean it and they're just saying it. It's they really mean it. They say, you know what? I really do want to give that up because I want to get Kapara on something that I did wrong. Okay, so let's try again. That can't be the curse precursor for Rafuna, because here when a person says, I want, in the case of the Ola, they really want to do it. They have something that they're gaining from it. So let's try again. So we try the other Tanaitic example. The Sefa, how about the end of that Mishnah that we saw in Erfin? So, too, in the case of bills of divorce for women. You can force the man in particular situations, as we mentioned. You can force the man to say, I want to get." Good precursor for Rav Huna, just like you can force the man in certain situations to give the get and just say, I want, even though they're being restrained, so it's coerced. Nope, but they said, I want. That works. So, too, Rav says, with a sale, if somebody restrains me and I say, I want, the sale is valid. So the Gemma says, no, 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 no. But maybe we have a problem there too. Maybe there's a difference. Maybe the get case is also different. That there is a mitzvah to listen to what the chachamim say. Meaning in this situation, this person is obligated by halacha to ligeresh, to um, give a divorce. That person... When they say rotze'ani, they really mean it. Maybe they weren't in their right senses before. Now that we've sort of kofinotam, now that we've sort of kind of beaten it into them, they finally say, ah, rotze'ani, I really want to do this. And what they're realizing is, I want to listen to Zevrei They really mean it subjectively inside. It's not just a performance to say it. They really, really, really mean it. Amazing. So what we went from was a conversation about Ola, and get being or possible situations of you can force someone until they say, I want, which looks like the law is only caring what you say, but not necessarily what you feel inside. To the Gemara and saying, no, 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 no. When you force someone until they say, I want, they really, really mean it inside. And the law cares about what's going on inside. So the Gemara, now we're back to Ravuna. What's the logic in Ravuna? So, Elas Farahu. Rafuna has his own logic for saying, tell you who is of zvine, if you restrained a person bodily, and they sold in order to get them to sell something to you, the sale is valid. Why agav onse gamar Because of the duress, the person decided, like really internally, they were gomer bedato, gomer belibo. They committed internally with conviction and are really uh, transferring the item to the other person's um, ownership. Meaning again, when you restrain me until I'm willing to sell you my iPhone and I finally say I'm willing, don't think that that's just an external performance and that the halacha is happy with that and says, the external performance, that's all we care about. This Gemara says, no, no, no. The spara is that because I was coerced, I, and I, I well, we're going to see. Because I was coerced, I actually, internally, I really, really feel it. I really, really want to transfer this item to you. Now, what is the logic behind that? So I'm going to share my screen again. The Rashbam has a read that I think is very helpful. He says, Rav huna, misvara kamar. Rav huna is giving his own logic. To surim, because of the pain, or I don't know, it's because of the pain, let's say correlated, or as a, I guess we'll go with as a result, as a result of the pains that I'm under in being restrained. Gamar b'libo, the person decides in their heart, umakne, and transfers the ownership. Why? Ho'il v'hi Because there are two aspects here. There's yisurim, there's pain. Yes, and I might just say, you know, like in two kids playing the game mercy when they try to hurt each other with their hands, if you've ever seen such a thing, and somebody at a certain point wants the game to stop and just says, mercy, 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 right? And sometimes as soon as mercy happens, they attack the other person, meaning you're just trying to get them to stop. But the Rosh says, this isn't just a case where I'm being physically coerced and therefore I say, stop, I want to give it to you. There's something else here too. Umatan maot. I get money. You're not taking my iPhone. You're paying me for my iPhone. And in that case, de lo midi. I don't lose anything. Ultimately, of course, I lose my iPhone. Meaning, if I really had an emotional attachment to it, there's you know there's something to that, and maybe you know my contacts on it. I don't know, but I don't lose the value. And therefore, Ravuna says that when I say rotsani, or whether I say those exact words, or I just say you can take it, I really mean it internally because of the money that you're giving me. Now, what does this tell you? If this were a case where you restrained me and made me give you your iPhone for free, we would not consider that to be a valid transaction because I'm losing something. So we don't really believe that when I say, take it, I really mean it in my heart of hearts, right? Once you start thinking what's in somebody's heart of hearts, you start getting into the conversation about, you know, well, when we can't assume that a person would really want this, then what do we do? Now, two more roads here, okay, that I wanna make. Number one, I want to say that there's a, another interesting exception to this rule of tell you visven's vinnes vine, that if you restrain someone physically to sell something to you, the sale is valid if they sold it to you. Not only do we say this doesn't work if it's a gift rather than a sale, but it also doesn't work if I wrote a mo beforehand. If I wrote something beforehand that says, I whatever transaction they're going to try to make me do, the sale that they're kind of going to try to make me do, you should know it's against my will and I don't want it. And I love that because if I wrote that, then even if in this moment I say Rotsani, doesn't work, right? Because they're playing with the question of can you really mean it? And I've already said I can't really mean it. So this is all play with the issue of how much do we care about your subjective internal self and how much do we just care what you say? And which one is really considered the real you, what you wrote beforehand or what you're saying now. And then the second harah that I want to give, and you know, chaval, that this is not in um that, that this is not our topic, right? If we were in Kiddushin, we would be talking about this, but maybe we'll get to it at some other point, which is. It's interesting to try to um, cross-reference this conversation where we are trying to figure out what your subjective rut zone is with another conversation in Chazal, which I alluded to at the beginning. And the other conversation is called Dvarim Shebalev Enam Dvarim. Stipulations in a person's heart when they make a deal are not considered legal stipulations. And I alluded to this before saying, ah, if I wanted to sell you my iPhone, by the way, iPhone's not a great example, my couch, because I'm moving to Israel, or I thought I was moving to Israel, but that's not something that I said in the stipulation of our deal. And then I don't move to Israel. Can I say to you, no, 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 I only meant to sell you the couch because I was moving to Israel. Right? Or better yet, you know, are there exceptions to that rule, which I don't know if you would call it exceptions to the rule or just defining the rule, where there may be a context in which it's so obvious that the only reason I'm selling you something or giving you something is because of something that I'm going through. And then it turns out that that becomes inapplicable. Then do we say, well, that's not Dvarim believe. That's something that's very obvious to all, but that's maybe for another time. In the meantime, what we have done is we've probed here what looked like a, you know, a quick passing line at the bottom of some of Aleph in Bavukama. We've probed the question of, to what degree does law, does halacha need your inner self for a transaction to be legitimate? And to what degree could it even be problematic for law to be trying to probe your inner subjective intentions, and we saw that this kind of interesting, almost like middle of the road or ambivalent approach of kofinoto maro achitomarotzeani, that we force a person until they say, "I want to do something," that that formulation in the Sifrut Tana'it, in Tanaitic literature, does not seem to be scandalous or surprising. Whereas in Amoraic literature, in the Gemara, it's sort of like, how does this work? What's the logic behind it? And I'm suggesting that perhaps you see a difference in the earlier Sifrut Tana'it, less of an interest in probing whether, when you said Rotsa'ani, you really mean it internally, or it's sufficient to do the performative rotsa'ani because law is concerned with external actions. And perhaps in the Gemara, we're asking, when you say rotsa'ani, do you really mean it? And if we think you really mean it, then the transaction is valid. I hope that you enjoyed this 30-minute conceptual overview of this issue, and I look forward to continuing next week. When, God willing, we will talk about Maase Shabbat, using something that was shaped in some way through Chilul Shabbat.